0: From KBOO in Portland, Oregon, this is Religion for Life, religionforlife.com. I'm John Schock. Religion for Life explores the intersection of religion, social justice, and public life. A few months ago, I wrote a guest column for the blog, The Friendly Atheist, the largest atheist blog on the internet. And in the column, I shared my views as a Christian minister. I'm a Christian minister who embraces modern scholarship and modern understanding of the universe. For example, as I wrote in the column, I think that religion is a human construct. The symbols of faith are products of human cultural evolution. Jesus may have been an historical figure, but most of what we know about him is in the form of legend. God is a symbol of myth-making and not credible as a supernatural being or force. The Bible is a human product as opposed to special revelation from a divine being and human consciousness is the result of natural selection. Thus, this life is what we get. So I regard the symbols of Christianity from a non-supernatural point of view. Those are some short summary statements. I've written lengthier pieces about how I see things over the years on my blog, Shuck and Jive, shuckandjive.xyz. The reaction to my column was quite amazing. The Christian media picked it up many angry responses they they wanted me out of the ministry we even had protesters at my church i touched a nerve that nerve is belief people have been trained to think that christianity is about believing things since the era of constantine in the 4th century christianity was about affirming beliefs i believe this i believe that well that's changing and it's changing rapidly Harvard theology professor Harvey Cox, who was on Religion for Life earlier this year, summed up the situation clearly. He said, Faith is resurgent while dogma is dying. The spiritual, communal, and justice seeking dimensions of Christianity are now its leading edge. A religion based on subscribing to mandatory beliefs is no longer viable. Harvey Cox. And he's not alone. More and more people are affirming that Christianity is moving away from believing things and toward a way of living. Today's guest shows that to be true. Peter Rollins is a radical theologian. He was on Religion for Life a couple of years ago. We discussed his book, The Idolatry of God, at that time. He's written a new book, The Divine Magician, and he's here to discuss it with me. Welcome back, Peter, to Religion for Life.
1: Hi, it's great to be on the show.
0: Religion uh, is a magic trick. Tell me about that. Can you explain uh, The Divine Magician?
1: Yeah, well, it was actually in the 1600s there was an archbishop called Tillotson and he noticed that magicians would use the term hocus pocus at the key point in a magic trick whenever like a bird would disappear or something. Mm-hmm. And he noticed that that sounded an awful lot like hawkest corpus, which is what the priest says during Mass when the bread and the wine turn into the body and blood. And so Tillotson was the first to suggest that magicians were mocking the Eucharist, kind of saying, oh, the priests are just like magicians doing like a magic trick. Uh, And, uh, you know, he was wanting to say that the communion, the Eucharist was an act of remembrance. Now, although Tillotson felt that uh, the Eucharist wasn't a magic trick and the Catholic Church would have agreed with him, I wanted to explore the possibility that actually these magicians were onto something that Christianity might be best understood through the lens of magic. And the traditional magic trick has three parts. There's what's called the pledge, the turn and the prestige. The pledge is where something uh, is given to, to, to view. So a coin or a, or a bird or something like that. Then the, the turn is whenever that object disappears. And finally the prestige is when the object returns and yet the object that returns in a vanishing trick is rarely the object that was there at the beginning. If a bird reappears, it's generally a different bird. That first bird is sadly probably dead. Uh, Or if I make a coin reappear, it's probably actually a different coin. It just looks the same. And in my book, I say that communion has three parts, just like the magic trick. There is the pledge, which is the bread and the wine here is the sacred in front of us that you can touch it. You can taste it. That's the divine, the absolute there before our very eyes. Then there's the turn and the turn is the disappearance of the sacred in our bodies. And then there is the prestige and the prestige is the return of the sacred. But I argue that in Christianity, the pledge is when we get up from our seats, uh, when we say hello to the people to our left and our right, when we realize that someone is suffering and we we say, oh, I, I hear you lost your job. Can I lend you some money? Can I help out? Or, oh, I hear you just had a child, but you must be exhausted. Can I cook you a meal? And that that's the prestige that the sacred object. And we all have sacred objects. That's the thing that you think will will make life wonderful and brilliant. It might be a relationship or religion or money. In Christianity, that disappears, and we discover the sacred as a depth dimension in all objects. So there's a brief summary of the entire book.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, so when you talk about religion then, and communion specifically as a magic trick, you're not putting it down. You're asking us to kind of embrace that metaphor and, 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 and play it all the way through, that, as, um, that it's, a, it's a magic trick, but it's a good magic trick because it eventually reveals us.
1: Absolutely. And, and I, I begin the book with Adam and Eve and I, I show how, you know, Adam and Eve are obsessed with an object that they can't get, a mm-hmm. piece of fruit. And they really want that piece of fruit. And, but it's behind a prohibition. You know, you can eat anything you want, just not from that tree. And they're like, oh, we so want that fruit. We so want to eat that fruit. Um, and I, I argue that that's how we all are to a certain extent we generally think there's something out there just beyond our reach that would make everything wonderful. Uh, in L.A., where I live currently, it's everywhere. Everyone is promising satisfaction and wholeness and completeness. If you take the right drug, do the right spiritual practices, you, know, you, you, you go to the right church, you get fame or money. Um, and so I argue that that's what you see at the very beginning of the Bible. That's the pledge. The pledge is the piece of fruit. And then I argue that in the crucifixion, which is set up just like the Garden of Eden, the temple has a place where called the Court of Gentiles, where people can come and sacrifice things. That's just like in the garden where Adam and Eve can walk and they can name the animals and hang around. And then there's the place you can't get to called the Holy of Holies. And it's cut off by a massive curtain. Just like in Garden of Eden, there is the piece of fruit that is behind a prohibition. And I argue that the turn of Christianity is when the temple curtain is ripped in two and we realize that there's nothing in the Holy of Holies, just like a magic trick, just like a magician pulling a curtain back and you realizing that the the pledge isn't there. But of course, you have to have the third part of the magic trick for the audience to clap. And the third part of the magic trick is the resurrection where we read that where two or three are gathered together, there God is. In other words, God is not some object that you grasp, that you love, but rather God is found in the act of love itself.
0: Oftentimes religion promises, yeah, if you do this, you'll get to God, you'll you'll get what you need, and and you're talking about the trick as actually reversing that. It's uh, altogether that uh, even when you look for that, but the, the crucifixion, the magic trick itself is actually no. There's not something external out there, but it's within you in in an, in in our relationships.
1: Yes, it's basically saying that that we conspire with religion, but also with secular culture, to try to uh, avoid the sense of lack that we have in our lives, to avoid a sense of our brokenness and our suffering, and that's very natural, very natural for us to do. But my argument is that Christianity, at its most radical, doesn't offer to fill that gap that we feel. It doesn't offer to help us escape from our brokenness, but rather it helps us realize that there's nothing that we can reach out to that will fix things. And actually, the way to fix things, the way to find healing, is to embrace our suffering, to look at our ghosts, the things that haunt us, uh, our guilt the people that we've loved and lost, the people we've hurt, the people who have hurt us. And that as we are able to embrace that lack rather than run from it, uh, we find healing, uh, we find fullness of life, and we are able to help build a better world together.
0: So the holiness is not getting us beyond the suffering, but it's actually within the suffering itself.
1: Yes. Basically, it's like we we all have poverty. We all have lack. We all face death. We've all lost people that we've loved. And if we don't face that, we generally get someone else to carry it. If there's, if we can't face our brokenness, we put it onto somebody else. We blame someone else. We become bitter. We become angry. The alternative is not to find something that will make everything better, but rather to embrace those parts of ourselves to be part of a community of grace that sec- accepts us for who we are. And as we accept that lack in ourselves, I believe that we are experiencing the good news of Christianity. And, and so what do you mean
0: then um, by the disappearance of religion in the subtitle of your book? Is, is, um, is that the, the disappearance of, of beliefs? Is it the disappearance of the promise of something better?
1: Well, I think in one sense, the key insight of religion for me is that uh, there's a sense that something is wrong, that something doesn't quite fit, that there's a lack in the world. Now, then what religion does is it comes in and says, and here's the answer. You know, you, you do X, Y, and Z, you read the Bible, you say this prayer, and then you will be able to overcome that lack. And so that's how I think of religion, and that means Secularism is very religious. Anyone who promises that you can have wholeness and completeness, whether it's through money or fame or going out with a certain person, that's kind of a religious move. It acknowledges that there's something lacking in your life, and then it says, here's the answer. And what I want to do is say that actually, I think faith is a different type of thing entirely. It embraces the insight of religion, that there's something wrong, that there's something lacking, there's something difficult. But instead of, uh, offering a way out of that, it offers a way more to enter more deeply into that. Not so that we despair, but so that actually we can rob that of its sting, that we can come to terms with the parts of ourselves that we repress and that we're embarrassed about or hurt by. Um, and we can learn to live with them.
0: If you are just joining us on Religion for Life, my guest is Peter Rollins. He's the author of The Divine Magician, The Disappearance of Religion and the Discovery of Faith. And I want to offer a quote of yours that I used in a recent worship service. I found it very meaningful. You wrote, um, The lived certainty of faith has nothing to do with belief or non-belief in God's natural law or karmic returns. It has no regard for metaphysical systems or carefully constructed worldviews. It instead describes a lived protest against forms of life that treat existence as worthless. Um, and page 119 in your book. Now, would you advocate somewhat of a, of a belief-less Christianity Uh Focused on living rather than believing or even non-believing?
1: Yeah, I mean for me we all have beliefs. Uh, mm-hmm. and they're 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 a reflection of various things, where we grew up, who our parents were, who the people are who influence us, the books we've read, et cetera. And so belief is is part of what it means to be human. Um but for me, Christianity is not so much interested in what you believe, but how you believe it. How does your belief function? You know, does it help you become a more humane and graceful individual? Or do you use your beliefs in, as a weapon to separate yourself from others and hurt other people? So uh, a philosopher that I like a lot called John Caputo, he, he defines this by talking about confessional, theology and radical theology. And he says radical theology isn't an alternative to confessional theology. Radical theology is what haunts and spooks confessional theology. Mm. It's that something that keeps it open, keeps it self-questioning, keeps it moving into the future. So for me, whether you're conservative or liberal, progressive, orthodox, Radical theology is not an alternative. It's whatever it is within your tradition that says, maybe we didn't get it all right. Maybe there's a different way of looking at this. And so it's that element that I concentrate on, that element of radical theology that disturbs us, uh, whatever our beliefs are.
0: So it's that aspect of us, and I think of myself, for example, as a clergy person. I may have be have my ideas about things, but it's that thing that haunts me at night that says, "Well, maybe I'm maybe that's not right. Maybe I better look at this thing, in a in a totally different way. Maybe what I'm thinking that is uh, central to life, is actually rather empty, and that emptiness is something I should explore rather than try to subjugate."
1: Absolutely, that that that's radical theology there, and and the mystics in traditional Christianity often provide that rule. Mystical theology is often the theological part of the church. That's kind of questioning that's saying, maybe this is slightly different from what we're imagining. Maybe what we're trying to speak of cannot be spoken. Maybe our doctrines and dogmas are limited. So that's, that's the voice that I'm interested in. Uh, but, but only as a, uh, only as a a stopping point on the way to a different type of faith, ultimately a faith in which are like, as the quote that you made there about certainty is no longer a certainty of the mind, but a certainty of the heart. And, and what I mean by that is imagine, imagine that you're in love, even if you believe the universe is meaningless, if you're in love, you cannot help but experience the world as meaningful. And conversely, if you don't love, even if you believe the world is meaningful, you can't help but experience it as meaningless. For me, faith is at that level of love. It doesn't matter what you believe on a day-to-day basis. It's, It's whether when you get up in the morning, you're compelled to see worth and value in the universe and in the people that are around you.
0: I remember a, a quote, and I'm just paraphrasing it now because I don't have it before me, but I've used it before that you said about resurrection. And you said, uh, I deny the resurrection, and anybody who knows me could tell you it's true. And and then you meant on what you meant by when you say you deny the resurrection, you deny it every time you ignore um, those who are suffering or those who have had their, their, their speech um, eliminated because their tongues were cut out. But every now and then you affirm the resurrection uh, when you actually give voice to another or show compassion or faith. I'm paraphrasing, but that's also a similar sense in which uh, the faith is a lived one rather than a believed
1: one. Yes, absolutely. I mean, when Jesus was asked, you know, what's the greatest commandment, it's, it's fascinating what he said. So he started off by saying something that was uncontroversial at the time. Everybody at the time believed in God. So to say, you know, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength would be exactly what everybody would expect. Um, he would have ticked all the boxes and that would be that. But then he adds something, and this is the significant bit. Instead of stopping there, he says, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Uh, in other words, if you want to know what the first one looks like, it looks like loving your neighbor as yourself. You know, the the, the two are alike. You know, that if you saw them walking down the street, you wouldn't be able to tell the difference between them. And so what this mm. does, incredibly, is it, it uses what people believe, but ultimately to draw them, I think, into a space where they realize that, that their belief in, in the meaningfulness of the beauty of the world, their belief in God, only makes sense, only has cash value if it cashes out in real love and tenderness for other people.
0: And I remember you were on the program a couple of years ago and we were talking about uh, your book The Idolatry of God and and the program aired on Easter Sunday and and I received an email from a listener who who wasn't happy and he was upset that I offended Christians by interviewing as he put it a prominent atheist on Easter and and I thought that was really odd. I mean you you talked about athe- atheism in a sense having atheism for Lent as as a good practice but I I I don't know would you would you call yourself an atheist or what's with all these labels anyway?
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm trying to blur those lines a little uh-huh. bit, and and I don't want to blur them just for the sake of it. I I just I want to be honest that I think for many of us and many of the people who are listening to this show, there's a little bit of theism, even if we say we're atheists within us. Hmm. And if we're athe- if we're theists, there there's a little bit of atheism in there. In other words, you might be a you know a, a person who preaches every Sunday. But sometimes on a saturday night think oh my goodness this is all crazy mm-hmm. or you might not believe it all but but every now and again you, you like to say a prayer for someone that you love and it's often we hate the other if they're the atheist or the theist sometimes because we haven't come to terms with that that part of ourselves so for me i want to help people acknowledge that that those boundaries between theism and atheism are a little bit less sure than we think, even within ourselves. And, and then, yes, I also do want to say that for me, it's not so much whether you identify as a theist or an atheist. I'm more interested in how you interact with those beliefs. Uh, you know, How do you use them? How do you conspire with them? Because you can use atheism as a weapon against your parents. I know a lot of people who have come from very religious homes and when they, they, when they defend atheism, atheism is like a, a position, it's a weapon, and, and it feels like they're attacking their their old friends, their family members, because they haven't come to peace with that side of them. And of course, on the other side, theism is often a weapon that is used uh, against other people. And th- that's what I'm interested in. I actually don't think Christianity has that much to do with belief. If you try to actually work out what Jesus believed, It's almost impossible, he's always saying different things, speaking in parables, undermining beliefs, turning things on their head. Uh, Actually thinking about um, how belief functions in Christianity, as I said, it seems like Jesus is much more interested in healing, and that's what salvation means actually, is healing.
0: Yeah, I, I, boy, I resonate with that. I, I think people get really upset uh, when their beliefs are challenged. There's something uh, at the core that somehow beliefs are used as you, you kind of use war imagery, like, like a shield or, or a weapon, um, that it uh, protects them. And uh, radical theology uh, is, is the risk of, of, of putting the armor down, isn't it?
1: Yeah, and that's a great uh, way of dis- describing it. Uh, I think very often our beliefs, my beliefs, uh, are defenses. And you can tell the difference. So if I'm in the bar with you and say you believe in God and I don't, and I start questioning you and say you get really uptight, you get really angry, you want to storm out, mm-hmm. I, that for me signals that your belief, whether true or false, that, that the way you're holding your belief is probably a defense mechanism. If, however, you're really open to having a discussion and you're not threatened at all by what I'm saying, in fact, you enjoy it, and you're kind of going, Oh, this is a great conversation. Then I don't think your belief is a defense mechanism. I I may agree with it, I may disagree with it, but I don't think it's unhealthy. My my main interest is is when our beliefs are defenses that are hiding uh, our own doubts, our own suffering, our own fears, not from other people, but actually from ourselves.
0: If you are uh, just joining us on Religion for Life, my guest is Peter Rollins. He's the author of The Divine Magician, The Disappearance of Religion and the Discovery of Faith. I want to talk about religious institutions for a little bit. Um, uh, You know, the statistics in the United States coming out that more and more people are becoming less trusting, less interested in religious institutions. What do you make of that? Uh, Why is that happening?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, actually, I don't think people are becoming less religious, and, and I Mm -hmm. I'm using the word religion in a slightly negative way Uh, in that I don't think people are seeking satisfaction and wholeness less. I live in L.A. and as I say, I feel that this is the most religious place I've ever lived
0: it's in the Every, culture itself you talk about yeah
1: yeah yeah everywhere i turn people are saying you take ayahuasca this drug you'll have oneness with god mm. or you know if you if you want to hear someone talk about how you could live forever and have the knowledge of angels you don't go to church you listen to a TED talk where they talk about us downloading ourselves in the digital form everybody's promising this i actually just think the church is becoming less persuasive a lot of the actual existing churches offer these promises and people are no longer convinced, but they're looking for those promises elsewhere. Now, my argument is there's a very small uh, type of church, which is hardly existent at all, but that follows this different idea that the role of the church is not to fulfill those promises, but rather to help you find freedom from them. And put it like this, everybody's offering your ultimate satisfaction, and you're free to pursue what will make you whole and complete, what will give you ultimate pleasure. For me, church is the place where you're freed from the pursuit of your ultimate pleasure. So society offers you the freedom to pursue your ultimate pleasure, and that's great, but the church becomes the place where you're freed from that pursuit, where you're no longer in the frenetic life activity of trying to find a way to be perfect, to feel perfect, to feel wonderful all the time. And you're in a place where you can experience the full range of human emotions, where you can be calm and collected, where you can make peace with those parts of yourself that you might otherwise be running from. So that's what, and that type of church, I hope will, will have a message for people today as much as it's had a message for people in the past. You
0: know, I think um, as a person who is a religious leader in a church, it's often been kind of put on us to kind of provide the answers or the church will give you the gospel or the church will, you know, make it all make sense for you. And I I, th- I think I read it was in your book that uh, perhaps we want, might want to be a community without answers.
1: Yes, this is the temptation. It's exactly the same in psychotherapy. That a person goes to the therapist demanding either explicitly or implicitly that they be made better, that things are less painful, that that by going to psychotherapy, they'll be able to work out all their problems and, and everything will be wonderful. And that is the exact thing that the therapist has to avoid giving. The therapist has to refuse the demand for answers and simply provide a space where the person can bring things to the surface in a place of unconditional acceptance work through that stuff and realize that in the midst of giving voice to that and, and the therapist bearing witness to it, that healing can be found. So in the same way, people go to church with demands for God to heal everything, for the pastor to give them the right answers, uh, to, to make their life less painful. And we have to have sympathy for that because I I mean I, I want mm-hmm. the same. But ultimately, the religious leader has to resist that temptation and rather provide a space through the liturgy, the prayers, the sermons, the music, to provide a context where things can come to the surface. Um, if I can use one analogy, it's the difference between a sports bar where you can go and get drunk and uh, you know forget about your troubles, and like an Irish pub where you maybe go for a drink and you talk about your issues. And instead of having pop music that helps you forget. You have somebody in the corner singing beautiful music about lost love that helps you connect with your own suffering so that when you leave the bar, you feel lighter and you feel healthier.
0: Peter Rollins, author of The Divine Magician, The Disappearance of Religion, and The Discovery of Faith. We just have a couple of minutes left, Peter. Uh, So glad to have you on. But in addition
1: to to writing books, uh, what else are you doing now? Oh, wow. Well, I'm doing some speaking. Um, I run a little festival now in Belfast where we look at a lot of these ideas. So I'm, I'm currently planning the next, the next festival. Um, and I'm really enjoying living in LA, actually. I've just moved here a year ago. I say how it's deeply religious, but um, it's uh, beautiful weather, wonderful people. And um, yeah, things are good. All right. Well, thank
0: you very much for this book and and for all your work and for being with me today.
1: Wonderful. Thanks for having me on the show.
0: You've been listening to Religion for Life. I'm John Shack. Find podcasts at religionforlife.com. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, download podcasts from iTunes. Religion for Life is heard on KZUM, Lincoln, Nebraska, and WEHC, Emory, Virginia. Religion for Life is produced and distributed with assistance from WETS, Johnson City, Tennessee, and KBOO, Portland. Be well.